0: Cool, cool, cool. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, today morning, we're carrying on in our sermon series on the real Jesus, or is it just real Jesus? Is it the, or just? Real Jesus. It's real Jesus. Uh, great, so we're going to carry on, and we're looking at uh, the first, Oh no, we're looking at the last verse <laughs> of chapter 7. There it is. <laughs> I've written the. So, delete it, Delete it at once. Uh, it at once. Uh, so, the the last verse uh, of, of chapter seven and the first eleven verses of John chapter eight. So, if you want to turn there in your Bibles for me, uh, it's great. What we're going to do this morning is uh, it's, it's a little bit different, maybe to what we normally do. Uh, to begin with, I want to talk a bit about um, textual criticism, um, and and a little bit about kind of this part of the bible and some of the background to this specific story it's one of my favorites but it's uh, a bit controversial i also want to talk about uh, generally why we can trust the bible that will you'll see why in a little bit and then at the end i kind of want to hone in on this story what it's got to say to us what the implications of it might be Um, so that's what we're going to do but let's just read the passage shall we uh verse 53 of chapter 7 you might find that they're actually squished together in your Bibles. Uh, 53. And, oh yeah, sorry guys. It's up on the, uh, it's going to be up on the screen once I've turned this on. There you go. Great. So you can look there, it's in the ESV on the screen. And I'll be reading that soon. Uh, okay. They each, they went each to his own house. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning he came again to the temple all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them the scribes and the pharisees brought a woman who'd been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst they said to him teacher this woman has been caught in the act of adultery now in the law moses commanded us to stone such a woman so what do you say this they said to test him that they might have something at some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote in the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Great. Um, this is a passage, there's two lines in this that are really kind of familiar. It's the, um, Let him, let he who is without sin cast the first stone, and... Uh, and, and Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. For me, they're like lines that are in my subconscious. This is a story that's actually uh, taught quite a lot, and uh, it's just quite popular. I think, at least it is to me. Um, and I've actually preached on this before. I think it was my first ever sermon was up here, and I did a like a gospel talk, and I used this passage. Um, but you might notice, I don't know, in your Bibles, that this passage is in brackets. Uh, sh- you can check your Bibles and just have a look and see where it is, in some Bibles it's not in the text, it's a footnote in your Bible and if your Bible is anything like mine, it says at the top um, uh, I'll just, just read it it says <clears throat> the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 to 811 so it's kind of controversial um, basically Bible scholars don't believe John wrote this story They don't believe that it was originally part of the Gospel of John and that it was actually added sometime later. So at this point, we're like, what? (laughs) Um, I don't normally... I wouldn't normally want to start a message telling you that the part of the Bible I'm preaching from isn't the Bible. Um, But nevertheless, that's where we find ourselves. Um, There's... Let me give you some reasons why um, the the scholars don't think this is part of John's Gospel... Uh, there's loads of them, but this is uh, four uh, main ones, um, as to why we wouldn't include this in John's Gospel, or why we'd put it in brackets and just say, hang on, we're not sure about this. Uh, one reason, it's not in the earliest manuscripts. In fact, um, before, it, it, before the 5th century, all the manuscript editions of the, uh, and copies um, of the Gospel of John don't include this story. The fact that the the text actually flows quite nicely from chapter 7, 52, through to 8, verse 12. Uh, If you leave the story out and just read the passage through, uh, it still makes sense. You could argue it actually makes more sense, uh, those two parts. Try it at home and see what you think. We did it, and and we were like, I'm not sure where this is, but yeah, there's an argument there. Uh, Another one is that actually when it does show up, Uh, in manuscript copies of the Gospel of John, Uh, it shows up in three different places in John, and it actually shows up at one point in Luke, uh, in one edition of Luke. So it starts getting into manuscripts, but in completely different places than where we see it today. Uh, And finally, it doesn't sound much like John. The style and the vocabulary is more unlike the rest of John than any other paragraph in this Gospel. Uh, So this, with a load of other things, uh, makes people think that, Uh, scholars think that this this part wasn't written by John. Can I say a, a big confidence? They say that because they know the rest of John was written by John. That's huge. It's the same textual criticism that Roots this passage out and says, "Hang on, there's a question mark here that has confirmed and affirmed and given us great confidence in the rest of the gospel." And we're going to talk a little bit more about why today we don't leave here going flip. We've got to be careful with our Bibles. We don't know. No, no, we leave today going, "Wow, these are the words of God to us, written faithfully by the people who it says it you know wrote it." So that's hopefully where we leave today. But how do we understand this passage? Uh, well. This guy, uh, Bruce M. Metzer, who is one of the most influential New Testament scholars of the 20th century, uh, according to Wikipedia, uh, but also other sources, Uh, he's actually um, a, a big deal in the Greek New Testament scholarly world. If you get Greek New Testament scholar monthly, he's in there a lot. He says this, this account has all the earmarks of historical veracity, that is truthfulness, It is obviously a piece of oral tradition which circulated in certain parts of the Western Church. Uh, Don Carson, uh, who uh, Josh has got his uh, commentary on John, big old book on John, and I've occasionally tried my best to to read it, bits of it at least. Uh, He says this, there's little reason for doubting that the event here described occurred. So although he says, I don't think John wrote it, and I don't think John ever intended it to be part of the gospel, we do think it happened. We do think that this is a story that, that, that was passed down orally, that was told uh, over and over, and at some point they said, this is, too good, to, this is good, too good to lose, we've got to get this written down, we've got to get this in there. It's got two powerful truth." It's got a combination of different things that, that tells a unique perspective on how uh, things like sin and grace and judgment work. So we need to get this in there somewhere. Uh, why am I bringing this up? Uh, and why am I starting the sermon this way? Uh, for three primary reasons. Uh, first reason is this. I think uh, forewarned is forearmed, a phrase that we have in English. Basically, There's lots of people out there uh, that kind of think that the Bible's a load of made-up nonsense. That Constantine wrote it in 200 BC or something, the Emperor Constantine just made it all up. Um, And what we know to be true is that the Bible, that the original text, they're like papyrus and the the sheets of goat skin that were, they're the most... uh, poured over and scrutinized and studied, rigorously studied uh, ancient texts in the whole world by a long shot. And I'll explain a little bit more why in a bit. And um, it's good for us to know in advance, I think, before we have the conversation with someone who dismisses anything you say about the the gospel. You know, you come and you share your faith with someone and they say, ah, don't believe any of that rubbish. The Bible's a load of made up. You know, they didn't even write it. Wasn't even you know, those guys that it says they didn't even write it, Constantine wrote it or you know, it's made up by lizards or something. Yeah. <laughs> Conspiracy theory. You guys can have confidence today that no this isn't true. We actually can open up the Gospel of John and apart from this one passage very clearly marked in your Bible, say, John wrote this. I think that's huge. Mm-hmm. Remember this text is like almost two thousand years old. That's massive. So forewarned is forearmed. Secondly, the reason to talk about this is I think we need to use our heads as Christians. Uh, the Bible is a complicated document. It's miraculous. It's mind-boggling that God has orchestrated this text, all these different uh, narratives. There's poetry. There's songs. There's romantic literature. There's historical narrative. There's, uh, there's prophetic. There's future visions. so much stuff in there and god has orchestrated it in such a way that it has this narrative that feeds through from genesis to revelation and god wants us to be a people that love him with all of their hearts soul body and mind it says in the bible so we part of that means that we grapple with his word now i don't think that means every time we come to the bible we should get headaches um on the contrary, we should come as little children and soak up the promises of Scripture. There's, but there are some parts that need to be wrestled with. And I want us to be a church that loves to wrestle with the hard bits of Scripture, that loves to talk them through, says, I read this, I don't know what this means. In a small group setting, that's a perfect time to say, hey guys, can we talk about this? I read it, I'm not sure what it means, where it comes from, Like, what, what's going on here? Does anyone have any idea or wisdom can we go through this together that's the type of people we want to be we're together on a mission to love god to serve him to honor him to know more about him and they have this direct revelation through the word through the bible where we can engage with uh, god's written words so we've got to use our brains yeah i think the bible is simple enough to be understood by a child and yet complex enough to be scrutinized by scholars. Um, finally, the reason to bring this up um, at all, and I hope that we leave here with more feeling of, of this being true, is that the Bible is our ultimate authority. One of the things that deeply concerns, uh, that's deeply concerning in the, in the church is when is people not knowing their Bibles to some extent. I feel that about me. I feel sometimes I'm like, ah, oh, I, don't, I don't know where my answer for this might be um, the reason why that could be a concern is there's lots of false teaching out there uh, sometimes even good and true teaching can be stretched or uh, taken in a direction it's not meant to go uh for example uh, the doctrine of grace we love talking about grace we love preaching about grace i love singing about grace uh grace is like the biggest thing in fact we probably say it so much it becomes a little bit of a like when a word loses its meaning somehow. We need to guard against that. But uh, grace is that God in his amazing and inexhaustible love towards us has seen fit to save us from ourselves and our destructive pattern of living. And we don't deserve it and yet we receive forgiveness for sin. We don't deserve it yet we're rescued out of uh, a life of destructive patterns. This is the biblical truth that we sing about every week. However, if we apply this in the wrong way or take it for granted, we can start to live in license, the Bible says. That means um, that we start thinking, well, if God loves me so much, it doesn't matter if I experiment here or dabble a little there or indulge in a little of this because Jesus still loves me. And for sure, for those of us who are saved, God's love for us is secure and steadfast. But that doesn't mean we deliberately pursue things that God says are going to hurt us. And ultimately, we want to grapple with the text of the Bible because its words to us are life-giving and authoritative. God has given clear and specific advice on how to live in ways uh, which please him and honour him and demonstrate that we are, in fact, children. Uh, Sometimes I felt like really convicted. This might come out of nowhere, maybe, but... Sometimes we can love Jesus for what he's done and yet ignore or not take seriously the things that he says or asks of us. I say that again. Sometimes we can love Jesus for what he's done. He saved me. He's forgiven me. He's brought me into his kingdom. He's clothed me in robes of righteousness. And yet the things that he says or asks of me to do, you know, I think of things like um, plucking out your eye and not literally but the seriousness that Jesus takes in and I think we do need to talk about you know you, we need to read those things carefully but there's a seriousness Jesus uh, the way Jesus talks about money and greed and the way that we can hold on to material things and the way Jesus talks about our relationships with others we can't come to Jesus for his forgiveness and then ignore what he says about lust we shouldn't come to Jesus being thankful that he's made us heirs to the kingdom of God and yet reject his teachings about money and greed. Uh, Martin Luther said this, unless I am convinced by sacred scripture or by evident reason, I cannot recant for my conscious conscience is held captive by the word of God. Uh, Here I stand, I could do no other, so help me. Amen. Amen. Uh, Martin Luther, who was up against um, the, the, the Pope and the whole Catholic Roman Church that was saying, what you're saying here is wrong. And he said, I, I can't, I see this in scripture. And so help me God, I'm going to stand on what it says in the Bible. And I think what my encouragement to us as a church is to see what's in scripture and to go, oh, I've got I've to grapple with this. I've got to work on it. I've got to live a life that reflects this. This is what it says. I think as a church... We're in a difficult position in, in our Western society, just as much as Luther, coming against culture that says one thing about sexual ethics. And yet, what we know from God is that uh, there is a, a healthy and uh, like beautiful way of demonstrating sexuality in marriage, for example, just to use one example, and there's a lot where we are coming up against a, a tide of culture that was, it stands in opposition to what the Word says. So I guess I'm saying the Bible is our ultimate authority. Mm -hmm. Okay. With that, why do we trust it? What about the rest of the Gospel of John and the rest of the Bible? Can we be confident in it as authoritative? I'm kind of hoping that we do see the Bible as authoritative, but why can we have some Firm foundations for believing that the Bible is trustworthy. I'm going to give a little small illustration. This is a really big topic. (laughs) Julius Caesar. Uh, If you've ever read his works, I'm sure we've probably all read The Gallic Wars, uh, a wonderful book. Um, (laughs) It was originally written in 58 BC. Uh, And we've got 10 manuscripts the oldest of which dates from the 10th century onwards that is a gap of 9 over 900 years between when julius wrote it and then they copied it and 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 copied it and, copied it and, copied it. and almost a thousand a thousand years almost a thousand years later they copied this copy and that's the only one we've got so a big big gap between what he wrote and what we have why is that important because people read this book today and go, oh yeah, that's what Julius Caesar said. We read it as if you study history, they just like, here it is, Gallic Wars, and you read it. So we take for granted that they are his words. A few other texts. Plato, a gap of 1,300 years between his actual text that he wrote and the copies that we have today. And there's only seven editions. A few more, scroll down to the New Testament the gap in time between what was originally written and the text that we have, for some text is as little as 50 years. That means that a person could have physically read the original and still be alive when that copy that we have was written. Does that make sense? Like, that's kind of big, because they could say, oh, I've just read your copy that you did of, this is wrong, you made a mistake here, because I've read the original. I was there when Paul... But the letter from paul was read out in the church at ephesus that's kind of big amazing that they even exist uh, and then the next thing to think about is the amount and number of copies julius caesar had 10 copies of his book if five of them say that julius caesar rode a dinosaur into battle and five of them said he didn't you'd be like well which five are right Maybe that was a stupid example, because you'd know. But once five says he rides a horse, you'd be like, wait, I'm pretty sure which ones are wrong here. Five says he rides a horse, five says he walks. How do you know? How do you know? If five say Jesus rode a dinosaur, and 5,681 say he didn't, you know that there's a mistake with those five. The more copies there are, the more uh, comparisons you can make. Um. Big, big topic, here's the bottom line. John Warwick Montgomery, you know he means business because he's called Montgomery. He says this, to be skeptical of the resultant text of the New Testament books is to allow all of classical antiquity to slip into obscurity. For no document of the ancient period are as well attested bibliographically as the New Testament is. (laughs) Simply put, we can really trust the Bible. Okay, let's move on to the passage. I'd like to use the remainder of the time here to look at this text. And as I do, I'm asking a few questions. Uh, What are the main points in this story? How do they fit with the rest of the Gospel of John and actually the wider Gospel message? If we agree that this story probably wasn't written by John, but that it did happen, we, we still need to ask ourselves, does this match up with the rest of Scripture? Does this key in with what we know f- to be true of uh, the, the whole revelation? In fact, we should be doing that all the time. It's really easy to take a verse from the Bible and go, whoa, that's what this means. Uh, but if we take something out of the context of the whole of Scripture, we can sometimes fall into really big mistakes. So as we read this, we're thinking about big themes and kind of seeing where they match up uh, with the rest of the gospel. So, I think this is a powerful story of uh, injustice and mercy, sin, judgment, and grace. I'm going to take them one by one, pretty briefly. Injustice and mercy. The woman here is singled out. It's perhaps an obvious point, uh, but it, she's been caught in the act of adultery and you you kind of need two people for that and yet where's the guy so there's this huge injustice that's taken place right at the outset to successfully convict someone of adultery in those days you had to have witnesses to testify to seeing the crimes in action so they can't say that they didn't see him they had to see it happening to bring it out in the first place To come and bring adulterers and say, here, we found adulterers. You have to say, these guys saw it happening. You need to see two people. He's nowhere to be seen. And the point is clear in the text. John even says it. The Jewish leaders are seeking only to test Jesus. It's a trap. And they're using her to do it. They don't care about the justice or the the law keeping. They don't care about the wrong that she's committed. They only care about how they can capture, catch get Jesus off God, get him to say something that's going to get him in trouble. If he sides with them and says, yep, stone her, then he's whisked away because the the death punishments were from the Romans. Romans were the only ones that could sentence people to death. So he'd be in a lot of trouble. If he sides with her and says, oh, no, give her a break, give her a break, then he's throwing the whole of the Mosaic law, the, the Old Testament laws that say, you know, adultery is a serious thing. He'd be throwing it out the window. So he's in a, where's he going to land? That's what they care about. And they don't care about this woman. They're just using her. But Jesus extends mercy because in all of that kind of complicatedness, he finds a way to save her, to spare her life. There are other people in the gospel who find themselves cruelly ostracized and rejected. I think of the Samaritan woman, preached on that a while back. Uh, uh, The woman at the well in chapter four uh, is again a woman ostracized by her community. She's going to the well at midday to avoid seeing anyone. And yet Jesus comes to her. It's a divine appointment where Jesus meets this woman and, and, and speaks truth into her life. There are plenty of other people, people who are held at arm's length despised, cursed, spat at, used by, by others. Uh, and all of these people meet with Jesus in some way and are extended mercy. Crucially, we all come from different situations where we might feel exposed and vulnerable, ostracized, marginalized. Uh, and Josh said last week powerfully that church is a place for all people. That's because Jesus comes and invites all people. But Jesus Uh, And he doesn't shy away from anyone, their situation, what they look like on the outset, or even what they look like on the inside. But he doesn't deny their sin either. Uh, Let me just give a little definition for sin that I'm using, there's other definitions, but I could define sin like this. It's the replacing of God as your deepest treasure and hope and desire with anything else. Let me put that another way. It's sin is hoping in, trusting in, loving or desiring anything kind of over and above more than God in a way that replaces him as the as the God of your life. Like, I guess that's we say he's God. And if he isn't in in charge and Lord of our lives and he's our our hope, he's what we look to, he's what we're we're hoping and trusting. in. at the end of the day, when all's said and done, it's to him I hope. Sin is basically anything we put in his place. Broad, broad definition. These can be good things and bad things, of course. So it can be um, addictions to drugs and it can also be looking to my uh, marriage and my, uh, you know, family life to fulfill my needs and to make me feel whole in life. This woman had sinned. It's easy to be sympathetic because of her situation. She's humiliated. Her whole life hangs in the balance. And this cruel and seemingly hopeless situation that she finds herself in, uh, it, it, it's, it's really easy for us to be like, Phew, you know. But Jesus says, um, that He says that towards the very end of the passage, go and sin no more. There's an assumption there. There's a knowledge there by Jesus. He, in fact, sees her heart. She's most likely made some decisions that led her to the point. And he sees past her decision to sleep with this guy and sees the desires that motivated her. We don't actually know those motivations, um, but we know that... Um, The Bible talks about uh, sex as a gift to be enjoyed within the safe and committed covenant called marriage. And this woman has broken that commitment as in committing adultery. So this woman's guilt is real. She committed the crime of adultery. And God, through the law given to Moses, commands her death. So guys, whoa. The amazing news is that we believe in a God who sets us free from and saves us from the problem of our sinful hearts. But we won't be grateful for the rescue if we don't see that we need rescuing. And here's the thing, God's not rescuing us from like the dangers of heartbreak, pain and danger. Yes, he is. He is trying to rescue us from the mistakes that we could make and you know, oh don't, you know, this is gonna hurt you, don't touch the fire. That is happening as well. God does want to save us from that, but it's actually much better. He really wants to save us for himself. He's saying, this is a quote from C.S. Lewis that I love. Uh, It says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. God's not just saying, guys, don't do that, it's dangerous. He's saying, I, I want to offer you this superior joy, this greater pleasure. Don't mess around with your one-night stands when I can give you fulfillment in covenant love. And more besides, the point that's worth remembering uh, as well is that no one gets off this lightly in the story. He, Jesus says, "He who is without sin cast the first stone there 's no one there that isn 't that doesn 't have a heart that is, is trying to supplant God with something else yeah. there 's no one there without sin, and it 's a hard lesson uh, in some ways, but at some point in our lives we 're faced with the reality of our own sin, and in this case, the decision of this woman." Um, to give herself over to another outside of marriage. Uh, For others of us, it can be something very different, and yet we find ourselves here in front of Jesus. And we might hear the voice of condemnation from other sources, but what do we hear from Jesus? Judgment? Neither do I condemn you, says Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, says to us, neither do I condemn you. And we need to hang on a little bit here because there's a, there's a problem with, there could be a problem with this. Because if God says, if you do this, there's a punishment. And then when someone does it, he says, there's no punishment. Isn't God unjust? Uh, the example I thought of was really bad in school sometimes. I, I, I've got my kids and they're all going out to break and one kid's like still playing. And I'm like, well, we're all going out and we're going to leave you in here. And of course, I can't leave the children in there on their own. I can't go forward on that. I've already backed myself into a corner as soon as I say that. And the kid knows. He's like, you're not going to leave me in here on my own. So I've lost that. Is God doing the same thing where he's like, oh, don't do that. There's a punishment. There's a consequence to sin. And then taking the consequence away. Isn't that what's happening? God says that this sin is intolerable, it must be punished, it's hurting us, it's breaking our relationships, and it fills us with false desires and directs our attention away from true joy, which is God. And yet when we come before Jesus, we hear, I do not condemn you. Jesus is the perfect sinless one and the only person in that situation who could have thrown the first stone. So is God unjust? Does God sweep this woman's sin under the carpet? Absolutely not. God fully intended for this sin of adultery to be punished to the full extent of his law, but she wouldn't bear the punishment. God fully intends for our sins to go punished, but we do not bear that punishment. Jesus would be punished for her. It says this in Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Grace. In this story, God clearly speaks to us as the good news of grace. That we want, he wants us to hear Every single one of us is that woman, and yet the God of grace takes our punishment upon himself and gives us his righteousness. His perfect law-keeping is now ours. His perfect loving commitment to God the Father is attributed, it's given to us. What's more is that he's changed our hearts. I love the metaphor uh, of being born again that Jesus says in uh, in John chapter 3 when he's talking to Nicodemus. He says, you must be born again. Because it's actually our heart that had previously had this desire, these desires to, to supplant God with other things. When we become swept up in grace, when we meet with Jesus, our hearts change, it's renewed, it's, it's given again a new heart. Um, grace sets us free and our heart is reborn. The hold that those old desires have over us is broken. Not only that, we have a new power that comes and lives with us. Josh spoke about it last week. Uh, The Holy Spirit, the presence of the Spirit works in our lives to cause joy, hope, peace, and love. But also uh, perseverance, self-discipline, fruits of the Spirit start to work in our life like new life. We've got some plants that are dying uh, in our house. And then uh, I left them for a while. I didn't water them. They started to shrivel up. And then I poured the water in. And all of a sudden, my basil plant has come back to life. It's a miracle. It's a miracle, is what it is. Uh, we actually received a lemon tree. And that came to us in a bad way. But, then, but with love and tender care, it's, it's flourishing. And we've had our first blossom. Our hearts are now under management of the Lord our hearts are now under new management. Yeah. I remember when I became a Christian, I said, God, I can't, I, can't, I can't look after me. I give over myself to you. That's what happens when the Spirit comes to reside in us. Um, just really quickly, when Jesus says, go and sin no more, it's actually the same past, present, continuous tense that Josh spoke about last week, go on being filled. Like, when it says, Jesus says, come to me and drink, and it's like a continuous drink, you've got to continually drink. It's actually the same tense. So what Jesus is saying here is, um, not like, go and be a perfect person, but breaking patterns of continuous, habitual, sinful living, it's kind of that same thing. It's saying, I once walked in this way, and Jesus says, no, turn around, and you walk in this direction, what we call repentance. The fact that it's the same tense leads me to draw the conclusion that something about coming and drinking is also linked in with going and sinning no more. We have this big word called sanctification. It's just the process of God renewing our hearts, making us more like Jesus. It's the process of God making us uh, less like what we used to be and more like how God uh, has created us to be. And the process happens as we come and drink the process happens as we see jesus we say i want to be like you lord help me be like you there'll be those of us perhaps that are struggling with something an inclination a desire maybe something you've not let go of a hurt perhaps and i want to encourage you today to give it over to god and perhaps uh, we need to ask for forgiveness and that is a normal and daily practice for christians But as I pray, I'm going to pray for us now just to finish. Uh, The main thing I'm going to pray, I think, is that we we look to Jesus. We ask him to be our greatest desire, our greatest hope. That as we go forward looking at the Gospel of John, we see Jesus more clearly for the life-changing and life-giving hope that he is. And I pray that we grow in listening to and obeying his words to us as well. Father, we thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you,